I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to Nothing Impossible on News Radio 1120 KMOX. Welcome in. Michael Calhoun and Travis Sheridan with you talking about local St. Louis business, innovation, entrepreneurialism. You know, sometimes on this show we get pretty teched out, right? Talking yeah. about all this, the cool new gadgets, maybe the new startups, maybe something new in bioscience. We're going back to the basics today, though. Agriculture. Beer. And. Flight. From here to there. There we go. So we're going to talk with, uh, first up, we're going to talk with the author of a new book about the acquisition of Goose Island by Anheuser-Busch and maybe some of the culture clashes that took place, some of the evolution that took place as Big Beer tried to understand how to make and sell craft beer. And really, uh, corporate versus startup. David sure. versus Goliath. And, and we're also going to talk about the... Uh, <laughs> You know, our agricultural roots take uh, some conversation out to Eckert Farms and uh, learn about what they're doing in the world of strawberries and really seven generations of running a a, a farm. And how the pick your own concept, I think, could be the future of retail. I mean, pick your own strawberries, how how that can inform how you go shopping for clothes. It really is about the experience. Mm -hmm. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. And then we're going to wrap up the show today uh, with uh, Michael. You did an interview out uh, discussing Wow Airlines. The new flight to Iceland. And many of those customers you'll hear are actually going to Paris and other European cities via Reykjavik from St. Louis. But the thing is, we can now get out of the continental United States from St. Louis, which is amazing. Yeah. So we're going to get into berries, beer, and we're going to wow you before this hour's out as we continue on Nothing Impossible on KMOX after this. Now, back to Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Welcome back. Michael Calhoun and Travis Sheridan with you on our show about local innovation and evolution, business, technology, all that good stuff, Travis. And we talk about things that get disrupted. And uh, you know, I think being in St. Louis, this is a beer town. Got a little bit of a history in beer. And uh, with the AB InBev acquisition you know, a number of years ago, uh, we've seen a lot of these craft breweries start to really flourish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think our, one of the greatest ones here in St. Louis is probably Urban Chestnut, which is really moving away from the craft side of things. It's becoming a, a pretty major brewery in and of itself. But brewery and beer is big business. Absolutely. And we've talked about how with the AB acquisition, that might have unlocked a lot of talent that would have been you know, a lifelong employee at Anheuser-Busch, but all of a sudden they're a free agent, so they think... Well, craft beer might be fun. I'm going to get into that business. And Urban Chestnut, for example, is a company that's a result of some former AB people looking to do something new. And AB, uh, as it continues to grow, uh, instead of just creating new brews on its own, sometimes they get into acquisition mode themselves and acquire some of these craft breweries. Yeah, they're recognizing the growth of the craft beer scene. And there's a new book out about the big merger or acquisition of Goose Island by Anheuser-Busch. It's called Barrel Aged Stout and Selling Out. And the author, Josh Noel, joins us on Nothing Impossible on KMOX, also a uh, writer at the Chicago Tribune. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Very glad to be here. Thanks, guys. So, Josh, give us the, the premise behind the book before we jump into it too far. 
Sure. Uh, basically, the book aims to tell the story of the rise of craft beer from the late 70s when the nation was home to fewer than 100 breweries. Obviously, the Big Daddy was right there in your backyard uh, and sort of chart the growth up to the present day where we now have uh, approaching 6,500 breweries nationally. Uh, and I tell the story rather than just telling the, the, the entire narrative of craft beer, I, I do it through the lens of Goose Island here in Chicago uh, and Anheuser-Busch down there. Um, and how uh, sort of those two stories wound up intersecting in 2011 uh, when Anheuser-Busch, which was then a subsidiary of Anheuser-Busch InBev, uh, acquired Goose Island because both Goose, the Goose Island side had a set of needs they needed to solve. Anheuser-Busch had a set of needs that needed to solve. And basically craft beer and big beer sort of merged with that deal. And then I chart what, what happened in the industry since then. Yeah, you write about how uh, one of the barons of Big Beer, the guy who ran marketing for Bud Light, was put in charge of Goose Island, and how did that turn out? Well, that was <laughs> <laughs> well. You're jumping right into like the into the wasps nest. <laughs> um, that that uh, it wound up being probably the 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 toughest point of the Goose Island Anheuser Busch relationship. Um, he, the, the guy's name is Andy Goler. He's still with AB. He's, he's been with AB since the early 80s. He ran Bud Light in the, eight, in the 90s, ran Bud in the 90s, and then was charged with sort of figuring out how AB was going to get involved in the burgeoning craft scene. Uh, that wound, after several false starts for the company, they realized they had to acquire, so they bought Goose Island. And uh, Andy Goler ended up being president of Goose Island for a couple years after the first couple of years, AB owned Goose Island. It didn't really know what to do with it. Uh, it knew it needed it, didn't know what to do with it, and sort of mostly left it alone. Uh, after a couple of years, Andy Goler was sent up to Chicago, took over, and Andy's job was really to incorporate Goose Island into the Anheuser-Busch universe, really just figure out how, to, how it could be sort of deployed uh, and do what AB needed it to do in, in an increasingly complex beer market. Um, and it was, there were some struggles. I dig into all that stuff in the book. A lot of it was honestly, has never been reported before. I was surprised to learn a lot of it as I was doing my reporting, but that, that was a very difficult adolescence for the company. Uh, but I was, it was described to me by people at Goose Island as necessary though. It wasn't just this guy from Anheuser-Busch came here and, and, uh, didn't know what he was doing. It's he, Andy very much knew what he was doing, but it was just—it was a very difficult transition for a craft beer company to uh, sort of work its way into the world of big beer, which is, you know, what Goose Island needed to do and what AB needed to do in order to get the most out of its investment in the in the company. You know, we we talk to a lot of startups uh, here in St. Louis across the nation, and and running a startup is very different uh, than running a large thriving, growing enterprise. Uh, complexities are different. Uh, managing staff is different. Distribution is different. Uh, and you mentioned that that Goose Island needed to grow up. As, as you've looked across the nation at the craft beer sector and space, what are some of those key learnings, the things that, that, that craft beer breweries need to do so that they can be competitive against some of these giants? Yeah, and in a lot of cases, they're trying to be <clears throat> excuse me, uh, competitive against each other, too. Sure, right. I mean, it's just the, the, the market is just so fragmented from, from what it was 
uh, a generation ago when people just basically like you had the one beer you liked, you know, and you were like a Bud guy or you were a Miller guy or a Schlitz guy or whatever it was. And now people are just drinking all sorts of different beers uh, all the time for all sorts of different occasions. Um, you know, craft, that's kind of the cool thing about craft is that it just it sort of came by what it does well so uh, so naturally. And that's just, it's sort of a, you know, it just sort of has authenticity. Um, and that's what people wanted. And, you know, the, the breweries that were making good beer had, a, had great brands and, and uh, authentic brands and great beer. And that's what people wanted. And, and they wanted different flavors like, you know, IPA and things like that. Um, and then, yeah, as you grow, there are definitely the challenges get diverse and it includes distribution. It includes how to, you know, how to be able to make more beer, but with the same quality, how to connect with more consumers, um, how to grow the business basically. And for, uh, Goose Island and then Anheuser-Busch went on to buy nine more breweries from coast to coast between 2011 and 2017. The solution for these breweries was to sell to Anheuser-Busch because Anheuser-Busch solved a set of needs for each and every one of the breweries they acquired. Different needs for each brewery, but basically what what selling to Anheuser-Busch guarantees other than making the founders, you know, millionaires many times over is growth. And you, you partner with Anheuser-Busch, or I shouldn't say partner, that's the language they, they like to use. You sell to Anheuser-Busch, and your brewery is going to grow. And frankly, you're, you're protected doing it. You don't have to expose yourself to, to risk. You're not, you don't have to take out a loan. You, you've sold. It's Anheuser-Busch's problem now, right? Um, and then and, and conversely, on the other side, Anheuser-Busch needs these brands, so they, they get obviously something out of the deal, too, because they can't just you know, sell macro lager anymore, Bud and Bud Light. <laughs> well, and we see a lot of this in the tech sector as well, right? So many of these startups will launch uh, with the intention of selling to Facebook or selling to Google. So it's it's pretty similar. They've got the, the tech... exit in mind before they even get started. Right, and their exit isn't to grow a thriving enterprise. Their exit is to get it to a point, de-risk it to the point, and increase the value that one of the larger incumbents uh, in the tech space, Google or Facebook, acquires them. We have that same sort of model in the craft brew space. Craft beer is so creative, artistic, personal, though. There's You're, you're making the taste. You know, there's, there's something more of an ownership, I feel like, with a craft beer brewery that you're starting versus I'm building an app and I'm thinking I may sell the app to somebody else. You guys just nailed both sides of the coin right there. <laughs> um, it's, you know, people make the comparison all the time. They say, because, you know, people, a, a tons of controversy followed each sale. Uh, you know, the title of the book is Barrel Aged Stout and Selling Out. Selling Out, obviously, is, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, often a lot of anger, you know, around that, that, uh, that term and how it's used. Um, and people say, you know, that exactly what you just said, that, you know, tech companies all the time, they, they start small, they grow, they sell, and, it, you know, they, and the owners get a pat on the back. Congratulations, you built something great, and you've been rewarded for it. But craft beer is just a different animal, and it, it has a different relationship with the consumer. I mean, it's just, it's, there's the, the heat and the passion around craft beer is what allowed the industry to grow to, you know, like I said, 6,500 breweries. Um, it's just a, it's a different relationship with the consumer. Uh, the consumer often feels like they're, you know, a part of it. They stand in line for releases. They, you know, go into the tap room, they drink the beer, they spend their money. It's just, 
it's one of the most passionate relationships in probably any uh, corner of consumer packaged goods. And as a result, you know, we don't, we don't feel that way about our socks or our washing machines or uh, even our wine. You know, it's something about craft beer. And as a result, that's where sort of the, the uh, people get, get so fired up about these sales and, and decry it as, as a loss of something. We're talking with Josh Noel from the Chicago Tribune and the author of Barrel Age Stout and Selling Out, Goose Island, Anheuser-Busch, and How Craft Beer Became Big Business. And Josh, uh, that reminds me of, uh, I remember when Ten Hills Pale Ale came out, and I was like, this is delicious. And then it disappeared, and I saw 312 Pale Ale, and now I see, or I've seen you know, in the last couple of years, the Green Line Pale Ale, which is also delicious. And I'm wondering, are these all the same thing with different branding, different marketing, or is, is there a slight tweak to the recipe here? And if they are the same thing, what's the goal? Is it because the marketing didn't click with the first two? And is this part of the trial and error of Anheuser-Busch and Goose Island trying to work this out? Yeah, no, you, you pretty much nailed it. Um, and that's, uh, you ha- have you read the book? Because you're asking really good questions. I have not. <laughs> okay. Um, I just found out about it a, a couple of days ago. I need to get my hands on a copy. Yeah, no, please do. But you're like, again, this is like an, uh, a very telling example. That, that's why I asked, because you sort of nailed something that's sort of an instrumental. I just drink uh, too much beer, I think. <laughs> well, it, it's working. It's working for your brain. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, the Ten Hills thing was, uh, well, basically, I guess the answer is really that under Anheuser-Busch and an, under Andy Goler, the guy who's now running Bud Light and Dilly Dilly and all that, um, Goose was trying to started to really think like big beer for the first time, and was it was sort of like, well, looking at spreadsheets, what's growing, what's hot, what are people buying? Oh, pale ale is hot. So Ten Hills was a direct outgrowth of what he brought to the table. There, um, it didn't click. You're exactly right, and uh, so they tried to expand the 312 brand. There's 312 Wheat Ale, which was very popular in Chicago. And they thought, well, 312 works uh, with the Wheat Ale. Let's try it with the Pale Ale. Guess what? Didn't work. Um, so then they went back to the drawing board. And, well, Green Line's a very successful Pale Ale available only in Chicago. Let's uh, shoot Green Line out nationally. Also didn't work. It's not selling well. Um, so you're right that that um, the Pale Ale sort of been a very representative of some of the struggles of Goose Island as it, I mean, it's still trying to figure out how to operate in the world of big beer. And uh, the, the fact that it sort of lurched from the left to the right and back to the left again with its Pale Ales is a really good example. So does a craft beer stop being a craft beer once it's acquired by big beer? Ooh, that's another big question. <laughs> so, uh, and I get into all this in the book too. The the definition of craft beer is uh, was crafted, pun intended, I suppose, by the Brewers Association, which is the craft beer trade group based in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and their definition includes three tiers. Um, one of which, really, the, the the main one that everyone's fighting about right now is ownership. So if you your brewery is independently owned, then you're a craft brewer. If you sell to a company that more than more than 25% of your company, your brewery, to a company that itself is not a craft brewer, then you're no longer considered craft. So every brewery, I mean, so Anheuser-Busch is far too big to be considered craft because uh, the, the cap on production is 6 million barrels per year. 
uh, a barrel is two kegs. Um, so Anheuser-Busch obviously makes way more than six million barrels of beer a year. So they're not craft. Um, so any brewery that sells to Anheuser-Busch is automatically uh, ixnade from the craft list. And, that, and people are fired up about that. That continues to be a very passionate subject. Last week, Pete Coors mm-hmm. of the Coors family and company um, took a, a shot at the Brewers Association saying, you know, we might not be cool enough to be in your club, but you guys need to drop the, the attitude and stop picking sides and we're, all beer needs to be on the same team. You know, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Um, but the definition of what is craft, what isn't craft is, is, uh, just an ongoing, uh, and very heated discussion. Now I seem to remember a Budweiser Super Bowl ad from 2016 that may have poked a little fun at craft beer too back then. Yeah. So I think this goes both ways. (laughs) Yeah, no, that was, so that, uh, I don't remember if it was 2016 or 2015. Um, that was sort of a, a really intense turning point in the whole discussion around Anheuser-Busch's uh, foray into craft beer and buying breweries. So it had just a few weeks earlier, Anheuser-Busch had bought uh, Elysian Brewing in Seattle, which is was one of the nation's iconic craft breweries, just widely regarded. Any uh, serious craft beer fan was familiar with the brewery from coast to coast. Uh, even though their their distribution footprint was mostly in the Pacific Northwest. So Anheuser-Busch had bought a lesion. It was really shocking to a lot of beer fans. And then literally a week or two later, they're mocking craft beer during, in a Super Bowl commercial. So it was sort of this, this set. Oh, and in the commercial, they, they actually uh, named a beer that a lesion made as something to make fun of, a pumpkin peach ale. And a lesion had made a pumpkin peach ale. So on one hand, Anheuser-Busch is, is buying up craft beer because it can't create it itself. And on the other hand, it's mocking craft beer, you know, for the sake of Bud and Bud Light. So it, uh, it was just this sort of this, these two stunning events so close to each other playing off each other, which led a lot of people to really question what exactly Anheuser-Busch was after. And, you know, I don't, I don't think the answer's that much of a secret it's it's about returning shareholder value is really at the end of the day that's any publicly traded company and anheuser-busch is among the biggest and to do that they they need to boost bud and bud light and they need to get in on craft beer because craft beer they realized wasn't going away well it's a fascinating topic and i encourage people to take a look at barrel age stout and selling out uh the story behind goose island and anheuser-busch and the whole craft beer and big beer business uh josh thanks so much for joining us Thanks, and I want to say St. Louis is one of my very favorite beer scenes, so you guys have a great thing going down there. Enjoy oh, it. Awesome. What's your favorite local craft here? Uh, two that are really at the top of my list. One is Perennial Artisan Ales. I think they're fantastic. And then Second Shift Brewing is I've never had anything less than a fantastic beer for them, from them. And there's plenty of other good ones, too, but those are at the top of the list for me. Good choices, Josh. Good good shout-out, Josh. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back on Nothing Impossible right after this. Now, back to Nothing Impossible on Kangam OX. All right, welcome in. Uh, I'm from California originally. I am from a place that has a lot of food-related festivals. I've gone to garlic festivals. I've gone to artichoke festivals. But now that I live in St. Louis, I have to say I am most excited about strawberries Mm. and strawberry festivals. We have Chris Eckert on the line from Eckert Farms. Chris, it's uh, 50 years of strawberries, huh? 
Yeah, 50 years, hard to believe uh, we could be doing it this long and still trying to figure it out. But Mother Nature always throws curveballs our way and uh, keeps it interesting. Give us a little intro, Chris, for those, I don't know who's in St. Louis and has not heard of Eckert's, but (laughs) just in case there's somebody out there who's not been to Belleville and checked it out, introduce us to Eckert's and the pick-your-own-orchard concept. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I'm fortunate to be the seventh generation of my family to farm here in St. Clair County. We've been farming here in Belleville since the 1870s, actually, on the same piece of property. And, you know, obviously things have changed over the years uh, and we've tried different things, but growing fruit has always kind of been in our DNA. And it was about 1963, we actually started opening up the farms to pick your own, where we have our guests come directly out to the field and get the produce right from the tree or from the patch in the case of strawberries, because, you know, produce is best when it's fresh and you can't get any fresher than when you pick it yourself. So that business continued to evolve. And in 1968, we uh, started doing pick your own strawberries. So here we are in 2018 and it's 50 years later. And while it's uh, still the same thing, it's evolves more and we've added a country store with all kinds of specialty food items and a restaurant with fried chicken and all kinds of play activities for kids to do, petting zoos and camel rides, pony rides. So there's a lot of new accoutrements to the strawberry experience. Well, I mean, I've heard of farm to fork, but if you're picking your own, you could literally go like farm to face. <laughs> like just like <laughs> exactly. pick it and eat it. Ground to mouth. Yeah. So uh, I'm most excited because I live in Old North St. Louis and I saw via social media that both La Mancha Coffee House and Crown Candy got huge flats of strawberries delivered to them, uh, which means there is a strawberry shake and I understand some strawberry peach sangria in my future this weekend. Uh, but Chris, what was the, the, the impetus behind making all of these deliveries and putting these products in the hands of uh, restaurants? And can I just say, scrolling through your Twitter feed, it's incredible. I see, oh my gosh, Old Bakery Beer, Pint Size Bakery, Strange Donuts, Salt and Smoke, Quincy Street Bistro, Taco Circus, La Mancha, STL Style, Ices, let's see, Taqueria, Gingham Buffalo, Four Seasons, Down on Laclede's Landing, Seven Restaurant. I could keep going. You have really crossed, crisscrossed the St. Louis area to get these strawberries out there. (laughs) Well, I think we just wanted to share our excitement about celebrating 50 years. So we took 50 flats of strawberries and took one to 50 different restaurants around the St. Louis area just to share what we do here on the farm with other locally owned restaurants and operators and get the word out about how great local fresh fruit is. Uh, Chris, I wanted to just ask you really quickly, you know, a little bit about, you know, this show, of course, we talk a lot about innovation and the startup scene in St. Louis, but it would be uh, irresponsible of us not to talk about not only the food scene, but our agricultural roots and what we do uh, and how that really drives our industry and our, uh, our economy. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, a farm as a thriving enterprise? Granted, you're seventh generation, so you're not running a startup any longer. Uh, but what was it like for your family? What has it been like over the years to be entrepreneurial in the, in the agriculture and farming space? Yeah, and I would say that uh, entrepreneurship is definitely in my family's DNA. You know, while we are still farmers, what we do as farmers has definitely evolved from generation to generation. And, uh, you know, I think the challenge that we face every day is farmers, not just fruit farmers, but 
corn, soybean, cattle farmers, you name it, is an ever-changing weather climate and ever-changing business climate. So it's, it's very challenging to squeak every uh, profitable penny that you can out of the things we do because Mother Nature always deals you a new hand every year. You don't you know, know exactly how to plan every year because it's different. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a challenging thing. So in my family, we've evolved in the terms of selling our produce directly to the consumer and inviting our guests to the farm to have an experience. And that's really been the game changer for us in the last 20, 30 years. Uh, and it's kept our business viable. And it's been a part of my family's uh, culture. As I've grown up, we've always been encouraged to try new things and not be afraid to test you know, the, uh, the norms of, of what we do on the farm. Yeah, and I think it, you hit the nail on the head when it comes to retail in general there for the future. How does a retailer compete with Amazon.com, somebody pressing a button and getting their item of clothing or what have you delivered, versus why do you go to the grocery store versus Eckert's to get your strawberries? And I think department stores and others are realizing that the experience is key. And just like you go to Eckert's and you have all of these different activities to experience down to picking your own strawberries, when you go to department stores, I mean, that's why Ikea is so successful because you get to interact with the products. Uh, I'm looking at uh, Vans has built uh, like skate courses (laughs) for their customers in their stores. And so I think you guys are on to the future of retail there. Yeah, I always like to share with our team members here that we shouldn't fool ourselves that we're in the business of selling strawberries or peaches or apples. We're in the business of creating an experience for our guests and memories for our families that come out to spend a day with us. That's why people come to the farm. They want to do something that's unique and experience life outside of their neighborhoods and see where food actually comes from. And that experience is, I think, where we really provide value to our guests. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Get on out to Eckert's, uh, visit Chris and the farm out there, pick some strawberries, and uh, experience something that is authentic to St. Louis and the St. Louis region, which is uh, our agricultural roots and really part of our entrepreneurial heritage. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And coming up next on KMOX, we're going to wow you with a story from Lambert Airport. That's up next on KMOX. Now, back to Nothing Impossible on Kangam OX. Get ready to be wowed as you, we talk with Airport Director Rhonda Hobnabriggy right now. You could not help yourself. You've been waiting the entire show to wow us with your wow knowledge of wow airlines. And so now our <laughs> listeners get to be wowed by this interview. No, it's, it's exciting. I hear Iceland is a real wowerific place to go to, too. Was that gonna, too much? We're jumping into this interview because it is... Very exciting, and our jokes are very bad. Uh, but yes, Michael had a chance. You had a chance to talk to Rhonda about the new launch of Wow Airlines. Set the scene. What is the gate? Where is the gate in the airport for Wow? And what does it look like with the celebration tonight? Yes. Well, first of all, uh, out of Terminal Two. So uh, most people know Terminal Two is the East Terminal, but Terminal Two, the ticket counter uh, is bright, bright purplish pink. It's the same color as their airplane, so you can't miss it when you come in. It's sort of on the west side of the lobby area as you come into Terminal 2. So lots of festivities. We've been greeting people all afternoon. Uh, Even though the flight check-in hasn't started yet because it's later in the evening, we wanted people coming off of airplanes and people going out to be able to see what's what's going on at the end of the service. So lots of people stopping by, having a chance to enjoy a fun little cookie, learn a little bit more. 
And then as you get to the gate area, it's leaving out of E29. So it will be arriving in tonight. Uh, you'll see a nice water canning salute as it comes into the gate. And then uh, a lot of festivities at the gate. We have COCAs participating, so they've got a number of singers out here from COCA. Obviously, we'll, we'll do the cake, a, a really fun, exciting cake. Uh, a number of speakers this evening. The mayor's coming out. Uh, Sheila Sweeney with the County uh, Economic Development Partnership. Uh, Kitty Radcliffe with Explore St. Louis. Just really trying to talk about and focus on what this means for St. Louis. And talk about the impact uh, on having this. There have been flights, you know, to uh, parts of Mexico and to Canada in recent years. But what does it mean to have this wow air flight to a part of Europe? Well, I think, you know, as you probably hear from uh, the region as well, it's been an ask of the region for a long time to have something into Europe. And even though it's not mainland Europe, it is considered a European market, a European destination. And there's 24 markets out of Reykjavik that they connect to all throughout Europe. Paris, France, London, Brussels, Copenhagen, Amsterdam. So we're excited about that. And I think for the community, what this means is that they have very affordable, easy access into European markets. And that has been an ask for some time. If you're a business, you want to know that you've got easy access. If you're a visitor, uh, so we think it will also bring visitors in. You know, one of the exciting things was I was looking at the loads today with uh, Pete, one of the gentlemen from WOW, and I was looking at where the connections are going on the flight that's out of here tonight and where the connection's inbound. And, you know, I looked at the outbound flight, which is full. So you've got about 70 people, I think, going into uh, Iceland. But we had 24 going into Paris. We had another 10 going into London. We had people going into Barcelona, into um, Copenhagen, into Brussels. And when I looked at the inbound, we saw very much the same thing. So that tells me that there's people because those aren't St. Louisans coming back because the flight starts today. Those, those are really, I think, and we hope, visitors coming into our city. And I think with this new flight, that has produced an opportunity for people to say, you know what, I'll go see St. Louis. That'll be great. So uh, I think it means a lot. It means a lot to the region. It means a lot to the airport. It puts, I think, the true international back into our international name. And, and I hope the region's as proud of it as we are. How have the ticket sales been uh, so far for this? They've been phenomenal. They have told us that it is the best U.S. market that they're in. Uh, and I think if uh, we announced about two months ago, they started with four days a week when the flight was inaugurated last year, uh, when we announced it and they, it went on sale. I think about two months ago, they called and said the ticket sales are really strong, so we're going to bucket to five days. So even though the May, it starts today, June 3rd, uh, it will be operating five days a week, not just four. Obviously, it's operating year-round. They have told us that they, um, if they continue with this kind, there's a very good chance we'll go to daily service in the spring uh, to early summer of next year. So you, said, peak season. so you said St. Louis is the best-selling market that WOW has entered in the United States. That's what they've told us. They've told us that, uh, that uh, it's the strongest market that they've seen in terms of bookings. Wow. And what does that tell you when you take a look at those, you just mentioned the connections that people are taking to Europe. You know, we talked about... Do we do Lufthansa for, to Frankfurt or try to get BA to Heathrow? Or does that give you any more of a clue as to what you should really go for for a, the next international flight? Or did you already have, because I know you analyze all this data, is that something you'd already known? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's validating that new service into Europe will grow above and beyond what we have. And now we know the numbers going every day and where they're going to. I think, you know, I only took a look at one day so far. But I think we'll watch this along with WOW, and I think what it will do is it will allow us to show 
to other carriers that a nonstop flight will stimulate the market above and beyond what we're currently getting. And, you know, whether that's people that, and, and again, you know, this is a very affordable flight. So I think it would be great uh, to see for those who may want business or first-class opportunities and those who want to be able to go over and enjoy a trip that maybe they couldn't take before because of the cost were prohibitive. So I think what this will do is it will help us to stimulate the market. I think it will help us to see that there are customers that are currently not coming in and out of St. Louis that will be flying in the future uh, if these nonstops are here. And as that validates that, I think that can only help us market ourselves with additional service from other carriers. How much do you have to, uh, to play with in terms of incentives and revenue guarantee and all of that for whatever next flight you go, uh, international flight you go to try to woo? Well, the airport has the same offering uh, to all carriers. If you bring new international service in and you commit to two years of that service and it's year-round service, not just a seasonal, that we, the airport, will pay your landing fees for 18 months. So that benefit depends on what size of airline it is and how many days a week they operate. But that's a pretty competitive uh, incentive package other airports have across the country. And so I think that's, that's from the airport, you have to open your package to everyone. We, we've been very uh, grateful to the St. Louis Economic Development Partnership in stepping up to the table to help with additional marketing funds on the flight. So they, they helped us with WOW. They stepped up to the table with $400,000 over the two years to help market the route, market it here, market it in Europe, market it in Iceland. And I think those, that market's helping based on what we're seeing with the loads. They've done the same thing for additional service. They can pick and choose who they want to offer that to because it's, it's not airport dollars. So uh, they have, a, you know, an additional offer on the table uh, to look at some legacy carriers. And, again, that varies by, you know, is it daily, is it year-round, what type of aircraft. But they've uh, they a gracious partner in, uh, in realizing that this is important to the region and in realizing that, you know, this is what other, other regions and markets are doing, and, and they felt strong enough that they stepped up to the table. And do you want to talk just generally about uh, the expansions of, you know, the D continuing to move down uh, or E continuing to move down in what was D um, and, and having to uh, upgrade things for this international service as well, the customs facilities and just in general, the, the uh, luggage, the new security in E, you know, what would you like to, to highlight in terms of the expansion that's been happening there? Well, you know, as, as we started coming down the corridor, we obviously need, saw the need for expansion of additional services and the checkpoint. So we did open a new lane uh, at uh, the secondary checkpoint, which is where pre-check is. So we opened that about three weeks ago. Uh, The Three Kings restaurant, which looks fabulous, will open here in the next week to 10 days, uh, kind of a little plain with the day by day. But it looks great. I think when people see that and they see, one, it's a very large restaurant, it's a very local name, uh, I think it's going to do really well. We added the lounge. You know, one of the things we kept hearing from customers was, We would like to see a lounge in Terminal 2. That opened in January. They're also exceeding their expectations, so that's doing great. So I think the growth down here has allowed us to find partners who are willing to come in and put these uh, these additional amenities in because they, too, can be profitable at them. So that has been a huge benefit to us. Um, You know, with the FIS, uh, we have done. We put a new bag system in there. Uh, That just uh, opened up this week done some renovations, so it looks nice. We have a lot of new signage working with Explorer St. Louis that highlights all the venues in St. Louis, so that's down the corridor as you get off the flight. And really trying to make it an, 
healing entrance when you come into the international arrival. So, you know, for us, uh, the growth down that corridor has been fantastic. And, you know, we're very hopeful that we can continue to see that grow. And, and you know, we, we certainly can turn that concourse into additional gate capacity if, uh, if we need to. Do you foresee, because it seems like Southwest just keeps adding connection after connection in St. Louis, uh, options for people to connect in St. Louis. Do you eventually see maybe filling up and connecting the two terminals together through D and maybe even Southwest passengers going through security in one or getting their bags in one? Yeah, the, it is an option. Getting the bags might be a little challenging uh, because I wouldn't anticipate that they would put ticket counters down there. But for passengers, surely, who don't have checked baggage, I think that uh, will be an option somewhere down the road. You know, for us, uh, it's important to make sure that if we open that, there's a financial benefit. I think Southwest has added 14 markets uh, in the last um, two and a half years. That's a big deal. Those markets have come out of Midway in an effort to grow that connecting traffic. The growth that we're seeing right now is all coming in our connecting traffic. So our local numbers are pretty flat uh, year over year, but our connecting traffic is up over 30%. So that's the growth that we're seeing is from those customers. I think if we can continue to show that operating through St. Louis is a great way to connect your customers, whether you're going east to west, north to south, we're a great hub to connect through. So I think we can continue to see that and little by little maybe pick off markets here and there. We also just announced uh, uh, Jacksonville service on Frontier Airlines. So it's also important to know that we try to grow with all the carriers. We're seeing a lot of uh, upgraded aircraft this summer. So Delta and United have both put in a number of larger aircraft for the summer operations because they saw the need to. So instead of operating maybe a regional jet or a a smaller, uh, you know, MD-80 or or 7.3, they're putting in some 7.5s and some larger equipment. So we're excited about that in both terminals. But I think it's, um, you know, we, we need to continue to show that there's a need for businesses and vacationers to come in and out of St. Louis, but also that connecting piece is a strong portfolio piece that we're doing right now, and it's working quite well, and we're hopeful that we can continue with them. I'm not saying wow, but wow. <laughs> that was a great interview, great show, and thank you so much for joining us because we talked berries, beers, and new airlines in St. Louis. Yeah. Come back next week. We'll see you then. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.